I thought that this book was fascinating. I'm going to hold it up for everybody. Okay, it's Kill Switch. Um, why did I think it was fascinating, Adam? Because you're describing the history of the Senate that most Americans don't know. You're describing the procedures in the Senate, which as we learned from the ruse about the parliamentarian, the procedures actually matter uh, to the people in the Senate as they should. Uh, but you're also describing what needs to happen if we're going to have policy progress. And again, this is bipartisan policy progress, which is what I loved about the book so much. So uh, first of all, congratulations on the book. Thank you. And then secondly, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your background. And then I'd like you to talk a little bit about the book. The, the reason that I wrote this book is because of what I saw in my time there. And you know, you, you get to the Senate and it's this mythical place and you're told that it's this bastion of wisdom and thoughtfulness and bipartisanship. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes been able to live up to that reputation. But what I saw was a Senate that uses that reputation to cloak itself and hide the dysfunction that lies beneath it. Uh, and the experiences I had there got me asking questions about why is it this way? And when you ask these questions, you get very unsatisfying answers. They tend to be answers about Senate tradition and they're sort of circular. It always comes back to sort of, it is this way because it is this way. You know, this is how the Senate wants it to be. Um, and I found those answers unsatisfying because what I saw was a Senate where it was shaped by power plays and it was shaped by individuals with narrow political interests, Republicans and Democrats, uh, who would make power grabs and, and change the rules and shape the rules and shape the norms and then explain it in, the, in terms of Grand Senate tradition and try to explain how they were the ones standing up um, for the framers vision and stuff like that. So I thought it would be helpful to write a book that tried to level set this and ground all of this talk in what the framers really meant and what they really intended the Senate to be. And I'm, I'm not an originalist here. Um, I wouldn't claim that we should hang on the framers every word for you know, thinking about how, what our laws should say and what our policies should be, but they did design a system that was capable of change and capable of adapting and meeting the challenges of new eras. And what we have today is a system that is incapable of change, that is incapable of passing common sense bipartisan bills that have broad public support. Uh, and I think the Senate is on the verge of becoming just another failed institution in American life. Welcome back to History Sucks and our series on LBJ or Lyndon Baines Johnson. My name's Justin. I'm here with Brian. Hello. Our podcast music today is brought to you by Bjorn. So check him out. Yeah, we'll have a link to him in the show notes. You can check out his uh, Twitter and his SoundCloud. Yeah, check them both out. There's a lot of good stuff. Um, today we're concluding our little jumbo intermission here uh, with kind of a history of the Senate, the hallowed body that LBJ is about to enter, this great institution of reason <laughs> and knowledge and debate. <laughs> now, Brian, what was that clip that we just forced people to listen to? Oh, well, that was something that I got introduced to courtesy of my father, who is a uh, 
just died in the wool uh, lib. But he, at one point, while complaining about you know Biden not sending out the two thousand dollar checks, uh, my dad informed me that the real problem in American government is the Senate. The Senate has gone bad. At which point he then asked me or told me that I should educate myself on this by reading a book by Harry Reid's aide, uh, Adam <laughs> Gentleson, uh, called Kill Switch. And um, basically, Adam Gentleson, yeah, he's an aide to Senator Harry Reid. Uh, after leaving that post, he uh, then decided to write a book about the Senate. One can only assume to, uh, uh, I don't know, exculpate himself from the many crimes <laughs> of Harry Reid and other senators. I don't know. Um, but it became a big hit in uh, the MSNBC sphere, which is the only way my my dad, it should be clear, does not read books and most certainly did not read this book. Uh, but he does watch MSNBC 24 hours a day. And so that's how he heard about it. So this book was getting a lot of play. And I decided to take an interview uh, from this group uh it's some sort of one of these weird freaky think tanks in dc that's dedicated to bipartisanship or whatever and he's there being interviewed the other voice other than adam chilson was anthony scaramucci mm-hmm. uh who is a finance guy from new york the who, mooch uh, he was famous for like a week yeah he was very briefly donald trump's uh press secretary and then became uh, a lib favorite because he became a never Trumper afterwards and supported Biden in 2020. Uh, but just an absolute Wall Street ghoul. As I mean, you can even like hear it in his voice. Just like this guy is, uh, you know, he played some sort of role in the housing crisis. I just know it. Um, but yeah, Gentleson, you know, he has this sort of theory which can basically be summed up as the founders created a wonderful thing called the Senate. Uh, It was designed to be a debating society for high-minded ideals and idealists. It was ruined in the 20th century by the filibuster and by the rise of partisanship. And if only we could get it back to the 1890s, uh, when everything in this country ran great, <laughs> we would be saved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because if the Senate has gone bad, that means it used to be good. And uh, <laughs> you have to have a positive vision of the Senate to point to. And uh, 1890 is <laughs> a curious thing to point to, as we'll get into. Yeah. Yeah. A real interesting thing. And, you know, he keeps talking about, you know, look, uh, this is not what the framers intended. And I just thought, you know, in this discussion of the Senate, I mean, if this Gentleson guy is getting play, it means that clearly people are very confused about what the Senate is. And uh, I thought we might begin our discussion by just saying or asking ourselves, what did the founders actually intend when uh, they created the Senate? And we're just going to do a brief little history lesson here for a second. Maybe we could watch watch Hamilton and see what uh, they said about the Senate. Yeah, exactly. And basically, the Senate's creation, people forget that we had this little thing after 1776 called the Articles of Confederation, also known as America's Mulligan, um, where for 10 years, uh, the country was ruled as a sort of loose federation of states. Uh, That federation, of course, was you know, fell apart for a variety of reasons. You know, interstate trade was difficult. You know, people were creating their own currencies. 
but there were some actually bigger problems that the founding fathers actually wanted to address. So in 1787, they held a secret meeting uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, this meeting was invite only. Only the finest members of each state were allowed to attend. The uh, At the meeting, even though it was held in the summer, windows were closed and locked. They weren't allowed to be open because they were afraid that passersby might hear what they were doing inside this convention mm. hall. Uh, at the same time, nobody was allowed to take notes of anything that happened in the discussions. A weird thing there. The only reason we actually know uh, a lot about what actually happened at the uh at the constitutional convention is that James, Ma- James Madison actually did keep very extensive notes about what was going on. And upon his death, he actually, I believe he asked his son to burn all the notes, but in true fail son fashion, they just published them. Hell yeah. So <laughs> we can, uh, we could thank him for that. But basically what we're talking about is a conspiracy, right? A class conspiracy, Unlike in the musical Hamilton, the people who were in the Constitutional Convention were not uh, young underdog upstarts, just scrappy underdogs fighting, you know, to (laughs) to make the country. They were literally the richest men in the country. Not merely just landowners. They were. Yeah, they were not merely landowners. They uh, had large amounts of slaves in many cases. They were the largest, uh, a lot of them represented the largest landlords in all the major cities in America. Uh, one of those things that people forget is that most people in urban areas this time were renters, uh, hmm. a condition that we are all returning to <laughs> right now. Uh, they were also the largest holders of Revolutionary War bonds, which will become a very big issue immediately after the Constitutional Convention when they go ahead and write themselves a very large return on those bonds uh, at the expense of everybody else in the country. But yeah, the these are the interested propertied class. And you might wonder, well, why are they there? What are they concerned about? And well, let's hear from a few of them. So we have James Madison here in uh, the Federalist Number 10. He's writing about the problems in the country, and he says, The most common and durable source of faction, by which he means class conflict, has been the various and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society. The first object of government is the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, he agreed. He says, look, all communities divide themselves into the few and the many. The first are the rich and the well-born. The others are the mass of the people. And the people are turbulent and changing, and they seldom judge right. The hilariously named Governor Morris, who is not a governor, just named governor, uh, quote, the time is not distant when this country will abound with mechanics and manufacturers, by which he meant the working class, Mm -hmm. who will receive their bread from their employers. Will such men be the source uh, or will be the secure and faithful guardians of liberty, by which, of course, he means property? The ignorant and dependent can be little trusted with the public interest. Uh, George Washington worried about, you know, anger uh, amongst colonists who are now poorer than they were prior to the revolution. Yeah. Is commenting that there's combustibles in every state to which sparks might set fire. And our future first Supreme Court justice, John Jay, just laid it out very simply. The people who own the country ought to govern it. Yeah. And 
So essentially they created a class conspiracy as, you know, Michael Prince's sort of classic formulation to form a new government that would protect the property classes. And just to give you an idea of what America looked like at the time, here's, you know, Michael Parenti describing conditions in the country in 1787. Quote, throughout this period, newspapers complained of the increasing numbers of young beggars in the streets. Economic prisoners crowded the jails. In 1786, one county jail in Massachusetts held 88 persons, of whom 84 were incarcerated for debts or non-payments of taxes. Angry armed crowds in several states began blocking foreclosures and forcibly freeing debtors from jail. Disorders of a violent but organized kind occurred in a number of states. Uh, And this is what the Constitutional Convention at its heart was. In Madison's papers on the convention, uh, you hear there's a little talk about trade, but they've pretty much already decided everything when it comes to interstate trade. There's a little bit of talk about a monetary union, but that's pretty much already decided before they show up. The real talk is... How do we create a state strong enough to put down popular uprisings? And the other talk is, how do we make sure that state doesn't interfere with slavery? <laughs> Those are the two big issues that they go back and forth on. And what ends up coming out of this, and I apologize for me, this is going to be a long quote, but Charles Beard in 1913 wrote what I think is still the best actual history of the Constitutional Convention and the creation of the Constitution, a book called An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Uh, And I just want to read this little paragraph from it where he explains the system they created. The economic corollary of this system is as follows. Property interests may, through their superior weight and power and intelligence, secure advantageous legislation whenever necessary. And they may, at the same time, obtain immunity from control by parliamentary majorities. If we examine carefully the delicate instrument by which the framers sought to check certain kinds of positive action that might be advocated to the detriment of established and acquired rights, we cannot help marveling at their skill. Their leading idea was to break up the attacking forces at the starting point, the source of political authority for the several branches of the government. This disintegration of positive action at the source was further facilitated by the differentiation in the uh, terms given to the respective departments of the government. It will be seen on examination that no two of the leading branches of the government are derived from the same source. The House of Representatives springs from the mass of the people whom the states may see uh, see fit to enfranchise. The Senate is elected by the legislatures of the states, which were, in 1787, almost uniformly based on property qualifications, sometimes with a differentiation between the sources of the upper and lower houses. The president is to be chosen by electors, selected as the, legisla- uh, uh, selected as the legislatures of the state may determine at all events by an authority one degree removed from the voters at large. The judiciary is to be chosen by the president and the Senate, both removed from the popular direct control and holding uh, for longer terms than the House. A sharp differentiation is made in the terms of the several authorities, so that a complete renewal of the government at one stroke is impossible. The House of Representatives is chosen for two years, the Senate for six, but not at one election, for one-third go out every two years. The president is chosen for four years. The judges of the Supreme Court hold for life. Thus, popular distempers 
as the 18th century <laughs> publicists called them, are not only restrained from working their havoc through direct elections, but they're further checked by the requirement that they must last six years in order to make their effects felt in the political department of the government, provided that they can break through barriers imposed by the indirect election of the Senate and the president. Finally, there's the check of judicial control that could uh, be overcome only through the manipulation of the appointing powers, which requires time, or through the operation of a cumbersome amending system. We got to stop that tyranny of the majority. The people, they get too hot. They're prone to passions, right? Exactly, right? And Justin, you know, there's a popular metaphor, which I have continually gotten wrong in all of our conversations about the Senate, right? That it's a it's the teacup that holds the saucer, or <laughs> maybe you could help me with this. Right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So think of, uh, you know, the House of Representatives that's supposed to, you know, more represent the popular will of the people who are hot and uh, prone to passion, which is in a way, which is kind of a way to dismiss them. But in some ways, it's also true. Like people are pissed off, like they want, uh, you know, legislation that's going to help them out. Um, But so the, you know, the will of the people is, you know, the tea in uh, the teacup and uh, it's hot. Right. And so, you know, in, olden times maybe now you'd put uh the tea into a saucer and uh just let it let it cool down a little bit and so you know the will of the people that's hot and prone to wanton passions is the tea (laughs) the saucer which you know cools things down you know it just uh yeah um reduces all the the tensions that's that's the senate Yeah. And so basically through inaction, (laughs) they prevent uh, popular legislation would be the, uh, uh, I guess, shorthand for this. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And it's it's this interesting thing, because I think it is worth noting that basically up front, the framers of the Constitution were saying, yeah, yeah. well, the way we're going to govern is not going to be particularly popular and nobody's going to like it uh, because it, we're essentially just going to funnel wealth to ourselves. How can we prevent the, how can we have the form of democracy with none of the substance right? <laughs> to make sure that we yeah. have the, people think they have a say, but in reality, not really. And uh, that's the stuff yeah. that magic's made of and the system endures. So I don't think we can fault them for uh, being wrong about <laughs> about the system working. Um, but in this talk, we want to kind of focus on the Senate, which I uh, argue is one of the two worst things in American government, the other being the Supreme Court. Uh, one of two things that shouldn't exist, really. Uh, but Justin, uh, you know, maybe give us an idea of you know this the senate where does it where does it meet where does this august institution i uh, get you know this this legacy of the uh, place of great <laughs> minds you know maybe draw a picture of you know the senate hall and give us all the all the detail what's the wood smell like you know sure um you know i i've actually been to the the capitol cuz i'm a little bit of a nerd and uh you know, like, like to learn about that sort of stuff. Um, I would say 
I mean, the interesting thing about the the Senate is is a little bit like how how nondescript it is, like the the Senate chamber, um, mm-hmm. especially like if if we're thinking back to you know before the the era of TV when it's you know not as well lit. Um, mm-hmm. The Senate chamber is just kind of this, you know, long, cavernous, pretty, pretty like drab, like dimly lit, uh, you know, long chamber. Um, you know, there, there's galleries with kind of plain white marble busts of the first 20 vice presidents. Um, and see, like this is first off, this is how we know that this is a sick institution full of sickos <laughs> as they celebrate the vice president. Yeah, you got to celebrate <laughs> all the vice presidents who <laughs> people know the names of definitely and yeah, know what they fully, look like. Yeah, fully creeps and weirdos. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah, there there's galleries of kind of uncomfortable seats uh, near the busts of uh, vice presidents. Uh, there's a flag hanging, you know, limply from a pole near the presiding officer's desk. Um, the officer of the Senate's desk is surrounded by a half circle of in the 40s. It, w- it would be 96 small wooden desks that look almost like they, they are really small. If you've kind of mm-hmm. seen them up close, like they look like desks that are for little kids rather than, you know, mm-hmm. desks for senators in, in the biggest Imperial power in the world, which is, you know, wh- whatever. Um, I think there was a, a design that was uh, created in the uh, 1800s. Uh, the, the British would, set fire to the Capitol in 1814. A lot of those desks were burned, but they were reconstructed with the same design. And when the Senate eventually moved uh, uh, to a different building in 1859, the desks moved with them. Um, and, you know, there, there's this whole, like, history of tradition and mythology of the great senators of the past. And so, like, uh, the desks would, will have inscriptions of uh, past senators that have sat in those desks. And uh, <laughs> you, when you're on, like, a tour of the Capitol in D.C., like, they'll, they'll speak of that in, in hushed tones. And uh, you can, as a, you know tourists or whatever you could sit you know, look at the desk where carved into it or at the little plaque at the top tells you here's where lord archibald chumley once sat you know held <laughs> senate and you could just go hmm good i love it yeah you know? <laughs> and i think that they'll tell you there there's um there's desks with uh bullet holes shot through them from various you know <laughs> fights in the i mean yeah there, there's there's a, a lot of interesting uh incidents of violence that have went down in the senate for sure we'll get into <laughs> one of them um the other the other thing is uh like as far as like the style the plainness um you know and uh the columns and pilasters like there's definitely this kind of uh you know um nostalgia for the old senate of uh rome you know and also another imperial power 
where <laughs> in Rome, I believe the the senators uh, served for life. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, there, there's some parallels between uh, this Senate and that one. Uh, um, they were also made up of the city's biggest landlords too, which yeah. is why when uh, Julius Caesar ultimately basically like pushed the Senate to the side. Uh, people liked it and were very were very happy to not have to listen to these old fucks. Uh, it's also why uh, all the Roman histories uh, hate Caesar so much and love the fucking Senate so much. Yeah. Because God knows historians love a landlord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there's bronze laurel wreaths, which, you know, if you're if you're at ground level, you can kind of see all this stuff, the columns, the wreaths. Uh, there's double doors. Uh, pretty tall and wide. Um, there's this sort of effect where if you're in the the gallery, like amongst the seats, like, um, you know, where they might stick you if you're on a tour, like the Senate does look pretty piddly. Um, you know, you mm-hmm. see all these tiny desks for school children. Um, <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to see, like, uh, you know, the detail of like, the ground floor but if you're at the ground floor it it looks a bit more historic and impressive yeah Um, well and so there's this mythology around debate in the senate right more so than in the house right so what's what's going on with that yeah i mean i would say (laughs) it's a little bit of a, a sham, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we can get into some examples of debate and maybe, uh, you know, what perhaps the golden era of the Senate when there was just so much debate. One example would be, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, debates, debate could change hearts and minds, you know, like the power of debate can just... Uh, change somebody's opinion at the snap of a finger just because their points and logic and reason were so good. And uh, one example of that people might use during the golden era of the Senate would be, uh, you know, the conversation between Webster and Hain, where Hain basically suggests that states should be able to nullify federal law within their own borders and, uh, you know, because what does one state care about what happens in another state? And then Webster's epic reply in favor of federalism uh, and union was said to be so moving, so patriotic, that it staved off an alliance between the South and the West in support of slavery. Um, Webster would say, Liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. And, and with do... that, staved off, <laughs> you know, staves off something bad from happening. And I think that was the first recorded use of an air horn in the Senate chambers as well, <laughs> you know. But but yeah, I mean, uh, it does have this thing that, that liberals in particular love which is this idea of a free exchange of ideas. Uh, le- yeah, again, leading to the the changing of hearts and minds. But unfortunately, the most famous incident, probably the only one that you've ever read about in a history book, you know, in school, in the Senate, uh, wasn't quite that free exchange. What, what happened between Preston Brooks and Charles Sumner? Yeah, so there was this uh, conflict about 
admitting uh, the state of Kansas to the union. And I don't necessarily know all the details, but um, under what uh, some in the South wanted to do, basically Kansas would have been admitted as a slave state. And so Senator Charles Sumner uh, speaks out against this, uh, you know, opposing the admission of Kansas as a slave state. And then uh, Preston Brooks uh, takes his cane. Uh, You know, a bunch of uh, senators kind of form a ring around Sumner and and Brooks. And uh, yeah, Brooks takes his cane and just beats the living daylights out of Sumner on the Senate floor, like over and over again, just hammers him with his cane. Um, I believe he had to, Sumner would have to take like a a leave of absence for uh, multiple years just because his injuries were so severe. Yeah. And he did, you know, for the rest of his life, he had memory lapses and all sorts of issues dealing with uh, having been beaten mercilessly in the head and probably died, you know, ultimately because of it. Uh, How did people respond to this breach in Senate decorum? (laughs) Brooks uh, was treated as a hero in the South and, you know, some people in the North uh, receiving hundreds of ornate new canes as uh, gifts from people. Yeah, yeah. Famously uh, carved upon them, they'd write things like hit him again and things like that. Uh, And also to show the pure cowardice of Preston Brooks, uh, because uh, Charles Sumner was actually a big guy, although much Preston Brooks, I think, was in his like maybe early 30s and Sumner was much older. Yeah. Uh, But Sumner was a big guy and he was in these tiny desks in the Senate. And so instead of doing what was tradition in the Senate, which was to maybe challenge him to a uh, duel or challenge him to get up. Preston Brooks walked up and just started hitting him while he was in his desk because Sumner couldn't get out of the desk once he yeah. started hitting him. Just absolute coward shit, but uh, became, you know, one of the most famous figures in the country at the time and uh, probably still goes down as maybe the most famous thing to ever happen on the Senate floor. Uh, although, you know, in the prior period, the 1820s, there was a, a long dueling tradition in the Senate as well. So we have this image of, you know, the Senate as a place of grand debate and everything. But as we sort of talked about, that's not really what the function of the Senate is, right? The function of the Senate is to cool things down, as you said. So, right. So like, what, what are the, what's the Senate actually doing? Um, I mean, some would have you tell it that, uh, the house legislation is poured into the senatorial saucer in order to cool it. And I believe, <laughs> uh, George Washington explained this to Jefferson, uh, when Jefferson asked like, why, why do you want to give the Senate so much power? <laughs> You're the president. Um, but really, it's, uh, you know, to preserve bourgeoisie democracy. I mean, to keep wealthy people safe, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, if it's if it's harder for, you know, the popular will to be enacted, you know, who does who does that benefit? Uh, the people yeah. that are already very well protected by the Constitution. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is why originally the Senate is appointed, right, by state legislatures, is they didn't want people's input on who became a senator. 
And it's why the name of the Senate is not chosen by accident. Uh, I guess House of Lords felt a little too on the nose at the time. But uh, it's interesting, you know, once the uh, Senate moves towards via constitutional amendment, moves towards popular election, uh, that really, nothing's really changed in the Senate. Uh, it's still wealthier by far than the average, you know, the average senator is wealthier than the average House member. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that there's been a period where the average senator hasn't been a millionaire. <laughs> um, uh, and it's interesting because the wealth of the average House member has actually increased very dramatically in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. Uh, but it's has never been able to keep up pace with the rising wealth of your average senator. So yeah. it has maintained this very aristocratic uh, sort of position and feel, right? And like any aristocratic institution, its job is to protect the aristocracy, right? Yeah, I mean, look at now we have senators like Diane Feinstein, who just sold what, like a $20 million estate or something, mm -hmm. however much yeah. money she's worth. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, I think Diane Feinstein's worth over $100 million. Like, I mean, it, it really is, if you go through and you look at the uh, wealth of these people, it really is disgusting. I... I'm looking. I totally forgot to put it in the notes, but I found an article in the eight from the eighties of the New York Times that was basically talking about exactly this. Where it's like, oh, for the first time ever, you know, the median income in the house is a million dollars, but it's actually still much higher in the Senate. And they go this whole thing of like, man, senators are becoming richer. And I compared what the wealth was of the average senator in like 1980 to today. And it's like, oh, don't worry. It's, it's blown through the roof of what the New York Times thought was uh, a sign of a like ossified aristocratic institution <laughs> in 1980. But yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Um, but yeah, um, you know, the, the other interesting thing is that, you know, until 1828, only land owners could vote um and so there there is this whole you know incentive of uh you know free free real estate you know push west uh, acquire acquire land and uh you'll be able to come uh become a citizen with full you know vo voting rights i mean uh, there there's a lot of uh things that were initially set up in order to uh you know promote capitalism and uh protect uh landowners yeah and i mean it's one of those interesting things that we probably don't think about as much anymore but uh the idea that began in you know early america all the way at the founding that uh again as you know uh or her first supreme court uh head of the supreme court said that the people who own the country should govern it the idea that property ownership is actually what makes one a citizen is deeply embedded in the American consciousness, right? And it's it's partially, it's part of our uh, hatred of the homeless. It's part of the reason why as a renter, you get no uh, tax incentives, but as a owner, you get tons of tax incentives, yeah. right? You know, like it really is built into every bit of legislation because it's built into the institutions themselves, right? And you see that right up front, uh, you know, at the, this is not an accident, right? This is, this is part of the system's creation. Um, the other interesting thing about the Senate, right, is every state gets two, Yeah, you know? Uh, again, another way of saying like, look, uh, if a state gets, you know, too populous, 
let's make sure that they don't get to make any, you know, call any shots or whatever, which, you know, even in the late 18th century, there was concern about what they would have called the time, the urban crisis, uh, which is the idea of, you know, when too many working class people fill a city like London, real problems can happen, right? So if that happens in Boston or New York City, you know, what are ways you can balance it? And one is, well, you give, you know, Virginia two votes. Yeah. The same amount as New York. The other thing was that, you know, the Senate was a smaller size than the House. And so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people who, who really revere our institutions would argue that that's part of the reason it's so great because the smaller size allows you to have more rich debate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know. And basically, I mean, this word they use over and over again, uh, you know, Edmund Randolph has it as well. Turbulence, right? You know, the turbulence and follies of democracy, right? The Alexander Hamulets, the people are frequently turbulent, right? Yeah. Uh, basically meaning those people get mad out there because we're fucking them constantly. What's something we can put between us and them? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I have this quote from... Uh, the Caro book, uh, Master of the Senate, which uh, we'll be talking about more in a future podcast. But I thought this quote on the Senate was pretty good. Um, It says, in creating a Senate for the new nation, its founding fathers had tried to create within the government an institution that would speak for the educated, well-born, the well-to-do, that would protect the rights of property, that would function not as an embodiment of the people's will, but rather stand firmly as a great bulwark against that will. They had succeeded. So, yeah. So, I mean, looking kind of at, you know, how the Senate was formed and whatnot. I mean, what does the sort of early Senate look like? Right. So what, what, what do we get out of this uh, this early Senate in the late 19th, early 18th, early 19th century? So one of the most notable things the Senate did initially was the Judiciary Act of 1789. Uh, It's been called almost an appendage to the Constitution, where basically a three-man Senate committee establishes uh, federal, circuit, and district courts and the jurisdictional lines between them, which has basically persisted to present day. Um, So, I mean, that's one thing the Senate has done. Mm -hmm. And uh, another notable thing that happened with uh, the Senate was when Thomas Jefferson wanted to impeach a Supreme Court judge for political reasons, uh, the Senate put a stop to that because, as you might recall, the Senate is the only body uh, that has the power to try impeachments. Uh, you know, the, the House can kind of uh, put it forth but the Senate actually has to convict. And of mm-hmm. course, uh, there, there, are, there are definitely reasons for that, as we'll see uh, a few times. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those hilarious things that uh, people like to, uh, you know, point out the technicality that, uh, you know, Nixon was impeached or Clinton was impeached or, uh, you know, uh, Trump was impeached or whatever. Andrew Johnson was impeached. Uh, forgetting that what that generally means in the public mind is that, oh, you mean something was actually done about the crimes of these people? <laughs> uh, which the answer is 
No, in no circumstance or time has anything ever been done about the crimes of uh, all these monsters uh, because the Senate is always there (laughs) to make sure that nothing will get done. It was very funny watching people get excited about the Trump impeachment and just being like, you guys are out of your fucking minds. (laughs) It is the job of the Senate to make sure that nobody in government ever has to pay for any of the things they've done while in government. (laughs) You know, so... um, Tell us a little bit about the the uh, golden era of the Senate. Sure. Yeah. This, and this might be what uh, the person speaking in the introduction to this podcast was hearkening back to. In the golden era of the Senate from 1819 to 1859. We Pete had, Durley. Yeah, we had three just uh, epic senators. Great at debate. Uh, the great <laughs> triumvirate, they were called. Uh, Clay, Calhoun, Webster, they had epic debates fighting over the admittance of slave states, uh, preventing conflict, trying to keep a civil war at bay. They tried to reconcile the unreconcilable. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, this, this sort of golden period where you see the senators actually doing stuff, like the the defining feature of this period is there actually is an internal struggle in the capitalist class in America, right? I mean, there is a widening split over slavery between, you know, Southern uh, planters and Northern industrialists and whatnot. Yeah. And because of that, the Senate all of a sudden is doing stuff, right? Uh, This will be an interesting point to remember when, uh, let's just say, the capitalist class is a little more... Uh, uniform in America is a, a little more on the same page with one another. Also, uh, but... like we didn't really have, you know, as much like working class, you know, organization. Like the working class mm-hmm. was still was still kind of uh, forming and only really existing in in cities. And uh, so, some might argue like that's part of the the tragedy of uh, Reconstruction and why that failed uh you know that that, that's another that's another podcast but well tell us a little bit you know maybe the uh biggest piece of legislation this time or the biggest uh uh bipartisan compromise uh this would have made anthony scaramucci very happy Uh, and it shows that bipartisan compromise works and is definitely not bad for long-term interest or anything tell us a little about the missouri compromise yeah, so I mean, uh, Clay's whole thing was, uh, you know, compromise. You know, trying to keep, uh, <laughs> trying to keep civil war at bay. He'd have epic debates with uh, Calhoun, who's a senator from South Carolina. Um, you might be able to infer what uh, his views were at the time, but the Missouri Compromise of uh, 1820 was legislation that basically. Um, stop northern attempts to, you know, prohibit uh, slavery's expansion by letting Missouri in as a slave state, but Maine in as a free state in exchange for legislation which prohibited slavery in the remaining Louisiana purchase lands uh, north of the 3630 parallel, except for Missouri. 
Yeah. And as we know, uh, this bipartisan compromise worked out great and sectional conflict ended right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It would never come up again after the Missouri <laughs> compromise. Oh, wait, except we already uh, talked a little bit about Kansas. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, I mean, is an extension of this continued sort of fight in the Senate, right? And I mean, this is a period of, uh, you know, like a, there, there is actual people today would be very confused by the actual Senate activity happening <laughs> at the time. Actual fights and stuff on the floor. You have this great quote from uh, de Tocqueville here. And, uh, you know, we can't do a podcast on American history without quoting fucking de Tocqueville. So, <laughs> so uh, why don't you hit us with this? Sure. Um, de Tocqueville says the Senate is composed of eloquent advocates, distinguished generals, wise magistrates, and statesmen of note whose arguments would do honor to the most remarkable parliamentary debates of Europe. Yeah, and so we're talking about, you know, this is a period where the Senate is really shining. They're getting up, they're uh, giving these grand oratories, and in their defense, I mean, if you go read some of like Charles Sumner's speeches, including the one that got him beat by Preston Brooks, they are great. Uh, and I will say that that Calhoun, uh, for being maybe one of the most reprehensible humans that's ever fucking existed, his speeches rock because it's basically just the naked advocacy of the economics of slavery. Like he yeah. literally, he literally at one point gives this speech where he's like look, we have to keep black people in inferior state or else how are we going to justify slavery? And I mean, that's where we make our money. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, no it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Like all, you know, uh, you know, all, all the talk of like the, uh, you know, Southern aristocrat and all that is out the window with Calhoun, just a fucking monster through and through. Uh, but yeah, this interesting thing happens though. Uh when you start to see secession, right? And, you know, a huge chunk of senators, let's just say, leave the body. Uh, what ends up happening with the Senate? Then? So, I mean, you have basically all of these uh, proxy fights over, uh, you know, secession up until 1849 between Clay, Calhoun, and uh, Webster. You know, the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act uh, was one such proxy fight, but yeah, I mean, it, it sort of you know comes comes to a head at some point. Um, the the South secedes, and um, while the South is has seceded, you know, um, there is a war going on, but the Senate is still you know doing stuff. Um, they're still passing l- legislation, and uh, it's interesting that um a lot of uh you know in this era they might call it progressive legislation uh that they couldn't pass before the pacific railway act of 1862 the land-grant college act of 1862 and the homestead act which uh you know uh provides people access to free real estate it's free real estate with the goal Mm -hmm. to 
you know, which you could argue whether <laughs> that goal was achieved, probably not very much, but uh, with one goal being uh, for more black people to own land as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And these these types of things just could not happen while while people in uh, the people in the Senate in the South wielded so much power. Yeah, yeah. So there's this interesting opening up period. I mean, essentially the war itself, the civil war itself, allows like the federal government to function in ways that uh, could not prior. Uh, and essentially allow for a lot of, yeah, I think at the time you would call progressive legislation. We'll set aside for a second what the end result of all that westward expansion yeah. was. But, you know, the idea that the state could actually function to, uh, you know, sort of build, a, you know, to build a modern society. But then comes the, let's just say, most reprehensible thing. Yeah, I was going to say, done. this is probably the worst <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, for, and that's saying a lot, because let me tell you, the, the body of the Senate has uh, committed some of the most reprehensible acts ever committed in society, in the history of all societies. Uh, one right there at the top with a bullet, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson and the Senate's refusal to remove him from office. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. So, I mean, if you'll remember, Andrew Johnson was uh, a Southerner, but he played it politically correctly and staying loyal to the union. So Abe Lincoln kind of selected him as a VP, as a compromised candidate to reach out to the Southerners and kind of, you know, assuage some of their their fears. Uh, you know, the unfortunate <laughs> thing that happens is Abe Lincoln gets assassinated, and then you have this reactionary Southern president that uh, gets put into power when Reconstruction is supposed to be happening. You know, uh, making sure that all these slaves who have been in theory freed actually have you know economic rights and can participate uh in the economy like other citizens Mm -hmm. and uh you know andrew johnson famously uh you know blocks over and over again uh reconstruction bills uh some passing over his veto and some some not uh, which uh, leads to his eventual impeachment in the House. Yeah, and you know, immediately after Lincoln's assassination, because of uh, very stupid rules regarding when the House and the Senate can meet, uh, Johnson's also given like free reign. I think for six months immediately after Lincoln's assassination to do what he what he wants with the end of the Civil War. And uh, it turns out what he wants is to rehabilitate the planting class, Um, uh, a group that he was never a part of, but desperately, you know, wished to be. Um, And I mean, literally one of the most reprehensible, the worst fucking president, we'll just say that. But like one of the most reprehensible acts is that he's overwhelmingly impeached by the House. It gets to the Senate. They only need 36 votes to remove him from office. There are 42 Republicans in the Senate at the time. So should be a cinch, right? You could even lose a couple. No big deal. So what happens? Uh, The vote ends up 
35 to 19, one vote short of impeachment. and Monstrous. Yeah, it's it's horrible. And people paint like a rosy picture around this where like the Senate did its due diligence because they prevented a president for you know being removed for political reasons. But I mean, Andrew Johnson, you know, you could argue effectively killed Reconstruction. And that's a, a tragedy that reverberates today. I mean, you know, you have uh, so many black people that are, you know, in poverty, more likely to be in poverty, more likely to be in prison. I mean, that a lot of this just harkens back to just like the total failure of uh, reconstruction. And it's yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, the end of the Civil War was this point where the whole country could have been reimagined under a more humane auspices, right? You know, envision. And Andrew Johnson shits all over that. At the same time, too, you know, this you know explains why Andrew Johnson was so hated at the time. Uh, you know, they had just fought a war. Six, you know, more than six hundred thousand people had just died in a massive four-year conflict. And Andrew Johnson's immediately saying, oh, yeah, that was actually all for nothing. I'm going to put all the planters back in charge. And, you know, this is, yeah, fuck it. Who gives a shit, right? Not my kids. And, you know, that was back when 600,000 people dying in America was like something consequential that people cared about. Not like today. But, you know, like people fucking were pissed. And um, they, you know... (laughs) It really is impossible to explain how insane it was for Johnson to do this and how despicable it was for the Senate to essentially be his handmaiden in the process. I mean, really yeah. disgusting. And so, like, I know some would argue that, uh, like, one of the tragedies is that, uh, you know, this this could have been different, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. Reconstruction didn't have to fail. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's a tragedy that we didn't have, like, uh, you know, popular forces like we didn't have like you know organized uh you know an organized working class um you know more more connection between you know white workers and and uh the black working class newly freed slaves um uh but it didn't have to be that way and uh yeah, Andrew Johnson's a villain. If you want to learn more about this, uh, you could read Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. Strong read recommend. The Reconstruction book by Eric Foner. Or if you're lazy, you can also listen to Matt Christman's uh, Kush vlogs where he reads these books and talks about them. Yeah, yeah Du Bois's Black Reconstruction is probably the greatest like American history text ever and beautifully written an amazing read everybody should read it I understand that it's long and it weighs down your bookshelf but it, it's worth it's worth the effort one of the few things in the uh hist- in, in history or the historical profession that's worth it so after the debacle of uh you know Johnson's impeachment after the failure of reconstruction we have this wonderful period of the Gilded Age, uh, which hilariously is actually the time Adam Gentleson thinks is the, the golden age of yeah. the Senate. Uh, but you, however, say it is a period of the Senate's decline. Uh, 
explain yourself. How how would you know more than the Senate <laughs> aide of Harry Reid? Well, in some ways, it's <laughs> it's not a decline because the Senate was pretty powerful at this time. Um, <laughs> it's doing great. <laughs> yeah, in, in terms of like power, it's it's doing awesome. Uh, the Senate kind of realizes. Well, I would say actually Capitol realizes that since, you know, the Senate isn't kind of as influenced by the will of the people, uh, well, who can the Senate be influenced by? <laughs> it can be influenced <laughs> by them. Uh, so there's this kind of alliance between, uh, you know, party bosses, robber baron industrialists, such as, you know, people running railroads and oilmen. Um, and they need uh, government to approve projects for them and uh, bestow upon them cheap land. And, uh, you know, they kind of go to this independent Senate, the Senate that's independent from the people. And they say, uh, hey, let's uh, let, let's uh, make some deals. <laughs> and uh, it starts working out pretty well. Yeah. And while we're recommending things, uh, Richard White's book, Railroaded, which is all about the building of the railroads in the Gilded Age, uh, has he reproduces many hilarious communications from within these railroad firms where they literally invent the idea of like corporate lobbying and are explaining it back and forth to each other in the dumbest way possible of like, hey, maybe we just give this senator a bag of money. He'll just pass it. And like, yeah, sure, let's do it. <laughs> like, it's very funny, worth reading. But anyways, so the Senate, I mean, it becomes pretty well captured. I mean, railroad interests are like the big, you know, that's that's the big money of the Gilded Age. Yeah. And the senators are all at the trough. Yeah. Um, so you have uh, Zach Chandler, a senator who dispensed thousands of state and federal jobs in Michigan while living and entertaining people in a fancy Washington mansion. Uh, you have Roscoe Conling, who becomes rich while controlling pat patronage at the New York Customs House, which is now the U.S. Customs House. And he flaunts it. Uh, he walks around wearing outfits like uh, green trous trousers, a scarlet coat with gold lace, and yellow <laughs> shoes. I mean, just, you know, this is what everybody this is. It's just their own little Lord Fauntleroy, <laughs> just little dandies going around. <laughs> uh, there was a corruption case called the Credit Mobilier, uh, where bribes distributed in Washington by the Union Pacific Railroad uh, those bribes are distributed in, in Washington, and uh, many involved in the House are censured over this for taking all these bribes. But curiously, nobody in the Senate is censured. Crazy! Yeah. <laughs> who would have thought? Uh, and at this time, who are who are big senators at the time? So there's a there's a big four in this in this era, you know, the Gilded Age. Uh, you have Nelson Aldrich from Rhode Island, big player. Uh, William Allison from Iowa, Orville Platt from Connecticut. No and, relation. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> and John Spooner from Wisconsin. And they're basically four guys who ran the Senate uh, during this period and got rich. You have this interesting thing I see where Aldrich thought of sugar or steel as a political group or social entity deserving of representation as much as any state or group of citizens. Yeah. Right? I mean, 
this is this astonishing period. Uh, there's actually some very important Supreme Court legislation at the time that is taking some really fascinating views of the 14th Amendment and what it actually means. Uh, that other institution that deserves to be buried. But uh, the Supreme Court is looking at the 14th Amendment as saying, you know, look, this isn't so much about, you know, black people and minority rights. This is really about the rights of corporations, if you think about it. And the Senate is going along with that ride, right? Yeah. I mean, they're getting out of the way of industry. And if they get to wet their beaks a little bit or, <laughs> you know, a lot, uh, you know, that's fine, too. Yeah. And again, it's another one of those awesome periods where everybody's like very upfront about all this. Uh, at the time when he's serving as a, I believe, a federal judge, uh, William Howard Taft gives this speech at Harvard where he says, look, you know, it's the job of the government to protect, you know, the minorities from the dangerous majority. And then he goes on to explain in minorities, I mean, by minorities, I mean, the railroads, uh, millionaires <laughs> and others who, you know, need to be protected from the, you know, turbulent masses. Right. And um, this is really a leading ideology Uh Still is today, but you know they they it's a little more they keep it a little closer to the vest these days. Um, and you and I see here that they had something called the Philosophy Club. I mean, I gotta know. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, you know it, it's more of a, a social club for you know these uh, senators to kind of meet every week, uh, have drinks, uh, play poker. Uh, you know, make make deals, you know, uh, you know, get get some uh, get some pork, you know, and whatever bill, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, if, if somebody from some representative of some, you know, corporation or uh, agent of industry is at one of these clubs, you know, that's cool, too. And uh, it's it's kind of where all the all the magic in the Senate started to happen. So instead of uh, this tradition of epic debate just moving people uh you know these gilded age senators were just kind of like fuck that we're just gonna do deals in the back room and uh, <laughs> that's how things are gonna work and so at this time they establish uh several fun senate traditions that continue to this day uh you may want to run through a little bit of that yeah, so uh, during the Gilded Age, we had uh, the seniority system established where Rocks. we'd give <laughs> leadership of committees to the longest tenured senators. I mean, we can talk more about that later. But... Yeah, whoever's the most fossilized mummy <laughs> gets to be in charge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then between 1871 and 1898, uh, the Senate would not ratify a single treaty and uh, regularly humble presidents like McKinley. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just flexing on the executive branch to me. <laughs> the other interesting thing, like, al although it took a while for us to get off the gold standard in the U.S., like getting off the gold standard was a mm -hmm. pretty popular thing uh but uh the senate kind of just blocks that over and over again and uh you know there are reasons for that because uh the gold standard you could argue is kind of a conservatizing uh you know uh, structure because it it keeps us from uh, you know creating and spending as much uh, money which could be spent on things like social programs. 
Yeah, I mean, and this was something that, again, comes out of the Civil War, which is during the Civil War itself, the U.S. just, you know, the, the Union side, you know, just prints fucking money. <laughs> it's like, fuck it, just prints a bunch of money. Um, yeah. W- which they do use for things like the war effort and stuff like that. Uh, thus showing that you, in fact, can do this. Uh, the reintroduction of the gold standard being, of course, a disciplinary measure to make sure that people don't think, hey, we can just print money out and hand it to people, right? You know, it's a disciplinary measure that introduces a uh, sort of a false demon of inflation and stuff that you now have to pretend that you actually give a shit about or care about. It's also one of those nice things that if you're a holder of debt, the gold standard really works in your in your favor. And uh, if you're a senator, guess where you're probably, you know, yeah. you have a lot of people who probably owe you money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're lending. You're not borrowing, essentially, right? Uh, to which the gold standard, another nice uh, feature for you. Uh, so weird that they're just working in their own interest. This <laughs> thing that I thought only started just recently. But uh, apparently, interest is the heart of politics. Interesting. <laughs> And one thing to note is there there was kind of popular some popular support for you know getting rid of the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually a political party formed called the Greenback Labor Party that you know uh, is about printing greenbacks, you know, not relying on yeah. gold. And uh, uh, one of their biggest names was uh, presidential candidate Benjamin the Beast Butler. Um, yes. He's a pretty pretty interesting figure. If you want to learn more about him, I would again suggest checking out uh, Matt Christman's uh, history podcast on that. And I believe another former Civil War general. Uh, I mean, the Civil War really in, in, like informs everything at this time. Yeah. Um, the other thing is the Populist Party too. I mean, its endorsement of a you know buy metal system by adopting silver is a, is again to relieve the pressure, the sort of disciplinary pressure that uh, the gold standard has on the working class, right? Uh, by trying to introduce a second, more available metal, um, you know. In the end, it turns out uh, all this is actually just bullshit. You don't fucking need it, but you know. Here we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so what's going on in the South? Because these guys are back. Yeah. I mean, so we're going to talk about the seniority system up until, you know, the, the 1940s. But it's important to note that, um, uh, you know, even even in like, uh, you know, the late 1800s, uh, the, the South was sort of taking advantage of this uh seniority system and uh using it for power and uh you know during this period a northern senator would complain about it and say that it operated to give senators from slaveholding states the chairmanship of every single committee that controls the business of this government there is not one exception yeah and it's fascinating because this is one of those hilarious things where, as you mentioned, the seniority system was literally developed in this period. You don't, it, it's made up yeah. like everything in the Senate. It's yeah. made up. You could just not do it. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it is one of these like fascinating things of like, Oh, we created this thing five years ago. Now our hands are completely. Well, <laughs> and, we and we will <laughs> see that in effect for a little bit <laughs> when mm-hmm. LBJ uh, gains yep. power in the Senate. Yep. And, uh, so the Senate gives themselves an additional power uh, in this time, too, regarding treaties, right? 
Yeah, they give themselves power to amend treaties by simple, you know, majority instead of needing a super majority. And so, you know, they they de- they definitely uh, make use of this. Um, you know, uh, at some point, you know, after uh, debate over, you know, I- imperialism, the Senate would amend and ratify a treaty with Spain. That would give the U.S. control over Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. And uh, believe it or not, there was, you know, some some contention in in that debate in that debate where some senators uh, didn't necessarily think we we should uh, we should have control over the Philippines. Yeah, uh, the Spanish-American War, actually not a particularly popular war in U.S. history. Um, But again, we're seeing that as the needs of capital change in America, the Senate, too, is adjusting to meet those needs. Hint, hint, when you complain, why can't the Senate do what we want? Oh, it's because of some archaic feature of it. Yeah, uh, those archaic features are, are changed at a, you know, on a dime when needed, right? And in this case, the increased, you know, the U.S.'s entry into the imperial game essentially is going to change how they look at uh, treaties and whatnot. Now, interestingly, uh, people are going to sort of, they're, they're catching on in this period of what a uh, fucking shithole the Senate is, right? Yeah. It's not a particularly popular institution as we come into the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, all of this uh, backroom dealing, senators getting rich, it sort of uh, it sort of catches up to <laughs> catches up to people. I mean, people sort of figure it out. Uh, political cartoonists start making, you know, uh, cartoons about rich, humorless men of mediocre political ability. Um, historian. Robert Weeb described the Senate of the late Gilded Age as, uh, if the government's main operational task concerned money, its major public function was debate, where the House of Representatives made most of the important decisions on allocation, the Senate acted as the center of oratory. The agenda varied only slightly. Tradition had invested certain topics tariff, currency, land policy, and more recently railroads with an eternal quality that set them apart as the touchstones of public morality. These issues required constant examination. By the same token, there was seldom a widespread demand for immediate solutions. Relatively few took it amiss that the Senate talked more than a decade before settling upon a law to regulate the railroads, or that it discussed the tariff directly after passing a bill on the subject, as if no decision had been made. Yeah, and I mean, so this is the public view of the Senate at the time, right? Is that, you know, people are demanding some sort of right. I mean, the railroads have caused at this point multiple massive economic disasters in the United States, uh, including the 1894 recession, which is maybe the largest uh, economic depression the U.S. has ever been in. Um, It's also the source of, you know, tons of labor tension and things like that. And people are just demanding that anything be done to rein in the railroads. And the Senate just spends, you know, a whole decade just, you know, pontificating about this shit yeah uh and the reason for that is it because they're uh silly old men 
The reason for that is because they're buying time, right? You know, they're buying time for the railroads to get everything they can <laughs> while they can. And uh, there's, you know, a lot of anger about the Senate. And one result is in 1913, the passage of the 17th Amendment, uh, which forces the Senate to uh, put the senators to put themselves up for popular election. Yeah. Uh, essentially going away from an appointed system to an elected system. Uh, I think we'll see fat lot of good that's going to do. But, you know, that's where the the pressure for that change. I mean, it's almost impossible to get a constitutional amendment. And that just shows you the pressure that the federal government was over or under to do something about the Senate. Yeah. How shitty it is. Yeah. (laughs) So the Senate, you know, during this time, I mean, during the Gilded Age, it's, you know, it's sitting over these extremely weak presidents. Uh, You know, it basically, this goes back to the Tilden Hayes election that ends reconstruction where the, uh, you know, select House and Senate members uh, meet in private and decide who's going to be president based off of a deal. Uh, You know, they'll take Hayes over Tilden, who probably actually got elected in exchange for pulling federal forces out of the South and ending Reconstruction formally. But essentially what they are saying is that uh, president doesn't really matter so much anymore. (laughs) Like, it's, it's just that guy we put up in there. And, you know, the Senate during the Gilded Age is able to have this power, right? Because they're just, you know, they're sitting there while these uh, very weak office holders are there. Um, And this sort of changes right with uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt kind of gets in there after uh, McKinley gets shot and... You know, for better or for worse, like, I don't necessarily agree with everything Teddy Roosevelt did, right? Uh, But, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt just kind of says, screw the Senate. I'm just going to do as much via executive action as possible. So he'd do things like, uh, again, (laughs) uh, this is not good, but he'd frequently send troops to Caribbean countries to install governments without congressional approval. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he'd agree in secret to Japan's imposition of a military protectorate over Korea, never consulting, you know, the Senate. Luckily, that's an issue that doesn't still come up today. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, the acquisition of Panama. um, You know, I mean, he'd openly brag about this, that he accomplished things without, you know, consultation with anyone. Um, a lot of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's significant domestic policy, you know, gets done without the approval of the Senate. And, um, you know, a lot of things that the progressive era wanted to get done, such as, you know, child labor law, workman's comp, those were not passed. And the Senate is the big reason yeah. behind that. So there, there is a limit to what uh, Teddy Roosevelt was doing. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is that limit is it, it splits the domestic versus the international realm, right? And yeah. and Teddy is generally the beginning of what historians refer to as the imperial presidency, which yeah. again refers to his use of executive action and or, or executive orders in order to, uh, you know, uh, engage in imperial acts. Now, of course, the house and the senate or the supreme court any other branch of government could have stepped in and essentially reigned all this in but i think what we're seeing and what we're trying to hammer home is 
as the needs of capital change, so do the functions of government with them, right? Uh, a lot of times, quietly, without public debate, all of a sudden, the president is just, uh, you know, starting wars based off of, you know, letters that he wrote, as yeah. opposed to uh, going to Congress and things like that. Now, of course, when that comes to domestic interests regarding labor, well, then we have to go through the entire, you know, rigmarole of uh, the federal government designed to be as ponderous yeah. and uh, ineffective as possible. Yeah. And so as far as, you know, domestic legislation, um, Kara writes that, you know, as the progressive era swept the nation in a wave, when the wave crashed against the Senate, it broke on the Senate. The waters falling away from it as they had been falling away for half a century. The Senate stood as it had been standing for so long, a mighty dam standing athwart and stemming the tides of social justice. Yeah, I mean, you know, a beautifully written uh, description of the awful institution. <laughs> now, there's going to be a sort of major standoff, you know, at the realm of, you know, at the in the realm of international politics uh, immediately after World War One. The kind of, you know, it, it almost harkens back to an earlier era. And that's with, you know, Woodrow Wilson's pet project of the League of Nations and the treaty, you know, the treaty involved with it. Yeah. So, um, you know, a big a big power player uh, during this era was uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, who famously uh, was not a very big fan of Woodrow Wilson. Um, this was post World War One, um, when uh, you know Woodrow Wilson is kind of touring around Europe, uh, kind of promoting this uh, you know alliance between all these European nations to ostensibly perhaps you know prevent a uh, future war. At least that's how it would be you know promoted. Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly how it was pitched, right? And of yeah. course, this is coming off of World War One, which was a unfathomable, you know, orgy of of violence uh, that even at the time nobody could explain to you what its purpose was. Um, you know, really shocking for everybody involved, and you know, to to sort of cut through it. I mean, what the League of Nations is doing is essentially saying, hey have let's have all the imperial powers of the world get together and next time when we want to divide up our empire maybe uh maybe we'll have a, a meeting of the minds and grand debate or some other fucking bullshit yeah. <laughs> to, to uh to stop it right this is the vision that wilson is uh selling uh how does that hit uh henry uh, cabot lodge's ears yeah, I mean, so Lodge partly, you know, hates Wilson, but also, you know, is, uh, yeah, I mean, he's looking out for, uh, you know, America's interests and uh, is very wary of uh, entering into any kind of, uh, you know, treaty with a bunch of other countries. Um, so he proposes a series of... Uh, 14 amendments uh, to water it down, um, which, uh, you know, if Wilson had wanted to kind of uh, back down and get the thing passed, um, 
he could have, but he also refused to do that. And uh, along with that, um, you know, Henry Cabot Lodge and others would promote, you know, anti, you know, League of Nations rallies. Um, oftentimes, you know, the main speakers at those rallies were uh, senators. Um, mm. You know, they were, it, it was sort of, uh, you know, in America, I, I don't know if they use that language, but it was sort of like an America first uh, type of thing where we need to have autonomy to do what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so Robert Wiebe, again, you know, in his book, Search for Order, he writes, talking about this, the opinion that the United States, the creditor nation, the philanthropic nation, the superior nation could do what it liked when it liked had run as a cheap refrain throughout the debate over the treaty. And basically, I mean, Henry Henry Cabot Lodge isn't anybody. He's the head of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. Yeah. Uh, also pushing for scuttling the treaty is Elihu Root, who was the former senator from New York who resigned from his Senate post and refused to run again in protest of popular elections of, the, of senators in protest of the 17th Amendment. So oh, well. all around cool guy. But uh, one of the really early big, uh, uh, big promoters of empire in America, uh, their position basically was, look, if we're in the League of Nations, that means we'd have to negotiate with Europe over our imperial holdings, whereas if we don't join, uh, we can just take what we want, right? Yeah. And uh, they felt they had a, that, you know, having not really suffered during World War One, uh, that the U.S. was in a much better position to take than to negotiate, so better that. Um, and it ends up sort of, I mean, it... it it's probably the uh, the exclamation point on the sort of ignominious end of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, again, you know, no sympathy for him. One of mm-hmm. a, again a top ten worst president in America. I mean, just enormous piece of shit, Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> but uh, kind of uh, this ends up being his legacy is completely fucking eating shit on yeah. the League of Nations. Uh, the League did actually exist in a form in Europe. Uh, and it prevented World War II, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, so clearly it worked. System worked. worked out great, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, how does the Senate then uh, work for us once we hit the Roaring Twenties? Right. So uh, we elect Warren G. Harding, uh, who is a former senator and ascends to the presidency. Um, he basically just signs, he promises to sign whatever bills the Senate sends his way, Uh, not send any legislation to the Senate himself. And, uh, you know, during this period, you have the rise of big business, uh, free enterprise, uh, no, no social reform. Uh, You know, let's party. And uh, yeah, let's uh, empower the business community. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, you know, this is, you know, sort of capitalism's post-war orgy, right? Um, war is always good for the bottom line of most companies, and oh boy, were they uh, were they having a time. I love that it. I don't know if you've seen this, Justin, but they they're trying to do this rewrite now of the twenties, where mm-hmm. uh, you know 
it wasn't just this orgiastic display of capitalism because they had just transferred a massive sum of wealth to all these companies and because the Red Scare had just like brutally repressed the labor movement. Uh, but they're now claiming, no, people were like that because uh, the, the Spanish flu, it, it was over. and People were just happy to, to get outside again. <laughs> Have you seen this shit? No, I, I didn't know that. No, <laughs> it rocks. I, I, you know, if you if you want to get you know, uh, your name in a newspaper as a modern historian, all you have to do is take whatever the issue of the day is and then just make some idiotic, fucking stupid on its face claim of how, oh, that's exactly like this thing that happened. Yeah, like Kevin. yeah, yeah it's, it rocks. The, the really interesting period for the Senate and for our other favorite, uh, you know, governmental body, the court, uh, really comes when FDR comes into office and with the onset of the Great Depression. Yeah. And so, you know, be- before that, we have uh, another sort of uh, weak president, Herbert Hoover, that gets into office and uh, basically just refuses to act, pretends that the Depression isn't that big a deal. We don't need, you know, any kind of uh, direct relief. Um and so the, you know, the, the public is sort of, you know, uh, waiting for, you know, the Senate, since uh, we have a weak president, waiting for the Senate to do something as far as uh, legislation. And uh, the Senate is so used to, you know, blocking stuff, uh, you know, saying no to things or just letting big business do what they want, that when the Senate actually needs to produce something positive, you know, for themselves, they they have no answer. They have no legislative uh, solution to this problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, once you get to the you know, so the Great Depression happens, right? It, it's it's very clear the the elements of the Senate that allowed it to be so effective at uh, blocking, say, railroad regulations is really going to make it incapable of responding to the crises at hand of a major economic crisis paired with a resurgent labor movement, right? Another another thing to note is when a single relief bill finally passes Congress, Hoover vetoes it, the Senate just does not override the veto. Between 1931, March 1931 and January 1932, uh, you know, the Senate doesn't even meet uh, by the time Congress <laughs> convenes again. There's as many as 17 million unemployed men in America, each representing, quote, a family in want. <laughs> and so the, these like long times when they're not meeting these recesses, which continue to this day, are these holdovers from, you know, to give them time for the like wagon journey from D.C., to their estate where they would oversee yeah. their estate and business. Right. And then wagon journey back. And it's just fucking hilarious that it continues to this day, including during what are clearly severe crises, which they should probably be at work for. Yeah. Uh, but... And then more, more interesting stuff is the banks start to close. Senators come to the chamber wearing uh, money belts, uh, <laughs> just to have some cash on hands and angry crowds would start emerging around the Congress telling them to feed the hungry and tax the rich. Yep, even back then. And uh, heavily armed police would descend on the protesters, uh, putting them in a detention camp. 
and uh, armed guards would start, you know, patrolling con- Congress from uh, th- this point on. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, hilariously, yeah, Taxi the Rich has always been a historically popular position. It's weird that nobody ever wants to support it in government. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, we've essentially set the stage, right, with the Great Depression that uh, the Senate's just going to have to be fucking steamrolled, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, so how so how does essentially FDR just uh, I because look, I understand from our current moment that the reason why Joe Ilyanovich Biden is incapable of pushing through the radical progressive reforms that he desperately wants, like you know Medicare for all, free college, uh, elimination of all debt. The reason he can't do that is because of the Senate, right? You know, uh, <laughs> most specifically the Senate parliamentarian. I mean, that this institution is so strong and powerful that there's just nothing that can be done. Yet somehow in the 30s, something is done. So how, how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, the interesting thing about this is, uh, you know, FDR's office just starts to write, you know, legislation. Like legislation is pretty much exclusively come coming out of uh, FDR's office, and the Senate is so unpopular at this point that they basically have to rubber stamp like almost all of the New Deal legislation coming up, um, or else you know face the wrath of their constituents face all these popular, you know, forces from, uh, you know, labor and uh, other organizations. Yeah. FDR is using the bully pulpit, right? Like he essentially is, uh, he's doing this, this one weird trick uh, to get your stuff done in politics, which is supporting very popular things that people want. And then he also through his weekly radio broadcast is literally telling people, Hey, um, yeah, if you're starving right now, the reason is this senator. Here's his name. Here's where he's at. <laughs> yeah. Like, you should go find him <laughs> like that. You know, I don't know. Just do something, you know, like he's literally, you know, telling people who their enemies are. And it turns out that is a very effective way to do politics. Uh, and it forces the Senate into signing a lot of shit that they don't want to sign. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he essentially rams it down their throat. The thing is, is that, this is effective politics, right? Uh, yeah. This is what you do when you actually want to achieve something. The other, the other interesting thing is that um, you know because the Senate is such a conservative body, um, you know the the Senate refuses to hire a lot of senators, at least refuse to hire you know additional staff, you know both both in their office and even in like all these various uh, committees that they're chairing because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they don't want any more uh, government waste. And so you have all these senators with just like one or two people doing constituent services. Uh, you know, it, it's a little bit difficult to write uh, legislation that way. And so you have uh, the president's office with, you know, like a few hundred staffers like many of them which are writing legislation uh, the senate you know in in that way kind of shoots themselves in the foot and uh leaves this kind of space open for uh things to be run out of the president's office 
I mean, this, you know, has to represent essentially like the nadir of Senate power, right? I mean, <laughs> they just, they got nothing. And that kind of brings us to the, the post-war period and the state of the Senate when LBJ gets there, right? So what does the Senate look like when LBJ arrives? Um, yeah, I mean, like I was saying earlier, uh, the Senate at this point is still like not not very well staffed, um, mm-hmm. you know, because of, uh, you know, uh, conservative thinking by the, the senators. Um, and uh, this goes all the way down to, uh, you know, committees uh, of which even even like very important committees. And uh, the other thing is that a high proportion of, uh, you know, senatorial staff are relatives of the senators. Uh, and so these are kind of plum jobs they've mm-hmm. given their family. And, uh, you know, one might infer that uh, these people who've been given these plum jobs won't be quite as good at them as, uh, you know, somebody else <laughs> might be. And uh, you can kind of see this where, uh, you know, um, Congress only passes two pieces of legislation per year, you know, written by them during the New Deal era, where (laughs) the president's office is drafting uh, a lot more than that. And yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I have a quote from Caro uh, about the Senate keeping itself insufficient, inefficient. It was increasingly unable to respond to the demands of a changing world, but because of the armor that the framers of the Constitution had bolted around it, that world couldn't touch the Senate. Again, I mean, this goes back to the sort of House of Lords kind of uh, comparison is the Senate is a museum of yesteryear, right? It's a place for fossils collect to keep the future from being born, right? It, it, a lot of times it has been this depository of a repository of fail sons too. Like, uh, I mean, even going all the way back to the South, I mean, like if you were a successful, like Southern family, your first son took over the plantation. Maybe your second son opened up a, another plantation somewhere else. And then like your third or fourth son, or maybe your dumbest son, that's the <laughs> one you made Senator. Right. <laughs> you know, kind of like always was the case. And um, yeah. And I mean, you're, you, you that, that character is like the perfect representation of like what the Senate is right now in the Senate. Once, you know, Johnson comes in, we still have this issue of the South and seniority, right? So what what exactly is happening here? Yeah, I mean, so the seniority system is still pretty, you know, ironclad. Um, all the power in the Senate rests on seniority. And, uh, you know, up till, you know, basically for 100 years, like the South have this figured out better than, anybody else really um you know they realized they could just keep reelecting you know putting up the same people over and over again and then uh they're going to get all the power so you know when LBJ gets there um although you know the south only holds i don't know maybe around 20 seats in the senate they have the gavel in 11 of the 13 most powerful committees. Yeah. And it's, it's worth pointing out that, you know, this is not 
an accident of like the constitution's construction. I mean, a big part of like giving, as we talked about earlier, giving, you know, two senators to each state was to empower the South. I mean, one of the things that gets debated about quite a bit in the Constitutional Convention is how much of a person a slave's gonna count for for the, you know, purposes of apportioning representation, right? And the whole thing is is that the South, you know, at that time wants political power that matches their economic power, which they're given. And it's worth noting that four of the first five presidents are from Virginia, uh, that basically most of the antebellum presidents are from the South. Uh, You know, then if you throw Andrew Jackson in, I mean, it's the vast majority are from the South. You know, Andrew Jackson is not from the South, but uh, the only president to drive a slave train. So I think we can say he's an honorary member. Um, But there's a lot of embedded power in the in the southern states uh which is reinforced by the complete lack of democratic institutions in those southern states themselves meaning that uh basically power is passed down as opposed to elected in the south uh meaning that you can have senators uh like uh oh um strom thurmond who was in the Senate for, I think, like 60 years. I mean, like, yeah. just some insane, hilarious amount of time that's always longer than you think it was, and then you, then you go look it up. Um, but you could have these, like, deeply embedded players because when you run for Senate in the South, you already know you've won that election. <laughs> like, it's not a question, you know, in, in the race, uh, which, you know, is one of those things that largely continues to this day. Uh, and it's it's worth noting that that was that was an embedded element of the constitution was to empower the south in this particular way yeah uh it's not an accident that has somehow come across right now lbj i mean he wouldn't be so gauche as to take advantage of any of this though would he (laughs) yeah um well we'll we'll kind of see about that because (laughs) one thing one other thing about the senate you know during this period is that it's it's getting older so the average age of uh the senator goes from 45 in you know the mid late 19th century to 60 in the 1940s and uh Remember uh, that LBJ's specialty is old men. You know, he's a professional <laughs> son. So uh, think about what's going to happen there. Oh, wait, that is the we're going to eventually write a biography of LBJ and called Professional Son. Uh, it's such a great it, that is such a weird feature of his <laughs> life that I never understood until we started doing this. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so. They, it's this gerontocracy, which people are like, you know, openly pointing out, right? They jokingly refer to the seniority system as the senility system. Um, you know, it's full of these ancient freaks. Uh, and Southerners in the Senate, I mean, the thing that's kind of interesting about them is while they hold this like death grip over all the power in the Senate, it's not like they have a chance to go any further, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, Southerners in the in the Senate have no chance at the presidency. I mean, they have, you know, 20 seats in the South representing, you know, like a fraction of the population of the United States. And they're unpopular uh, 
you know, throughout the rest of the country. And so while they can, you know, get their way using, uh, you know, the procedural aspects of the Senate, um, that's not going to help them uh, achieve any kind of national office. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, these Southern senators, you know, they they exercise their sort of power in, in the Senate, though, because they're there for so long. They just know every like, you know, it's like that uh, kid who's playing a game of like uh, magic or something. And he just has the deep knowledge of all the cards and like the ways you can combine them. Uh, they're the nerds who know it all, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the Southerners would just, um, you know, basically get the book. I don't know if it not not Robert's Rules of Order, but whatever, like the Senate, you know, I think it's actually called Senate Procedures. Uh, yes. You know, the the Southern Senators would make sure like all their people had that book. They would pour over it. Uh, you know, learn all the process. The Northerners would think they were dorks and uh, snicker <laughs> at it a little bit, but really it allowed Southerners to win like every little parliamentary battle. And Caro would say, when liberals tried to fight on the Senate floor, they were like children in the Southerners' hands. <laughs> well, you know, nice to see things have changed. And I would argue like this in itself that, um, you know, like uh, that I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, being knowledgeable about process is a bad thing. I mean, it's often, you know, used to ends that are, you know, like pretty reactionary, but, you know, it, it, it could be used for something positive. However, you know, the, the South cares a lot more about preserving their you know like reactionary Mm -hmm. ends than the liberals do about actually like enacting any kind of positive legislation so there is like a politics in that you know the south learn all these processes and procedures and the liberals don't yeah, I mean, the difference is that the South is engaged in an actual political project, right? Yeah. And in the North, they're just not. They're just fucking around. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it is one of those things. Uh, you could use those exact same rules. So, I mean, the same things that, say, Republicans use to hold up uh, the nomination of judges, uh, like Democrats could have used similar techniques to hold up, you know, Republican spending bills and stuff like that. The difference being, whereas Republicans are united and, you know, controlling the courts uh, and see it as a larger political project, uh, the Democrats uh, pretty much believe all the same thing Republicans do about tax bills and spending bills and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, it always comes down to the issue of political will. And it's also one of those funny things, too, because, I mean, we've seen now, as we've gone through this long history of the Senate, that you could just change the rules if you want. Right. Yeah. You know, none of this shit is like written and stuff. None of this actually matters. Right. It only is powerful if you imbue it with power through just not giving a shit about anything. Right. Um, which brings us to uh, this is, you know, Adam Gentleson's big, uh, you know, thing. And, you know, it's it's one of these hilarious Senate traditions that is exclusively used to the most evil means possible. Uh, yet somehow we're told we can never get rid of it. 
which of course is the filibuster. Oh yes. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the the filibuster. Uh, where in the Constitution is it exactly? What uh, what article is it that the filibuster is uh, mentioned in, and uh, why we're not allowed to do anything about it? Yeah. So the filibuster comes from a Spanish word called filibustero, which referenced. <laughs> Sleek ships used by Caribbean <laughs> pirates as uh, filibustering was analogous to holding up process by quote unquote pirating it. And, uh, you know, as uh, many, many bodies, including uh, the House of Representatives in the US, uh, Parliament in England, uh, adopted the ability to, uh, you know, call the question or call to question uh, to end debate and uh, adopted methods to limit debate. Uh, the Senate, you know, kept this, you know, tradition, you know, it's not in the Constitution or anything, um, but they kept this tradition to uh, allow people to keep, you know, measures of debate and, uh, you know, ensure that people could use debate uh, to keep things from coming to a vote. Yeah. And so in the old days, it's not the case today, but the old days is basically like, hey, if you could talk long enough. Uh, yeah. I mean, we can't take a vote if you're just yammering on about God knows fucking what down, <laughs> down on the floor because we all have to quietly listen to you for uh, reasons, I guess. Uh, so how is this used historically? Um, it was first used by the South to block a vote during the John Quincy Adams administration. Um, be used like somewhat frequently after that, um, or sorry, infrequently after that. Um, but though it's not used like uh, you know a ton initially, you know the threat of it is always there, and uh, you know the threat of the filibuster can definitely you know force uh certain certain yeah. compromises we'll see happen yeah it's um, it's mere existence uh functions as a disciplinary agent right uh so if you're wanting to pass something that somebody is ardently politically against you have to consider the fact that they might choose to do this now it's important to remember the only thing that anybody is actually actually ardently against in America is pro labor legislation. <laughs> so yeah. it kind of comes down to that. Uh, so the other, the other thing I want to say is mm -hmm. that uh, call the question is good. I've seen like some mm -hmm. people in left circles be like, "No, we need to have lots of political debate, and you should never, yeah. you know, call the question." That's Shouldn't have bad, any but... political debate, honestly. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, I don't like. I, honestly, like, I've, I, I, I see, you know, endless debate is kind of uh, oftentimes used as like an impediment to progress or to waste time or to not get yeah. to the rest of the agenda. And call the question is good, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the endless debate model is what we saw the Senate doing. I mean, that's one of the other sort of arrows in the quiver, right? Is if there's something that's popular, but you don't want to do it, you can just endlessly debate it, you know, forever, right? Uh, discuss every, like, needling detail uh, to no real ends, right? Um, so 
along with uh, the filibuster, right? So the U.S. they passed in 1916. Uh, the Senate passes a, a rule called cloture, right? And so cloture is the sort of call to question for the Senate, right? Yeah, except it's not, you know, it's not maybe quite as strong as it might be in mm-hmm. other places. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean. They passed this rule that they could uh, impose cloture on a pending measure. And uh, if it was presented by 16 senators and approved by, you know, two thirds of the voting body, you know, they could stop, you know, the filibuster. <laughs> However, Just comically absurd fucking yeah. <laughs> margins. But yeah. However, even in, you know, making making that, you know, like a uh, Senate official or whatever, uh, they leave a loophole in there in that it only applies to measures that are pending and a vote had to take place to make the measure pending. Thus, senators could just begin talking and filibustering immediately when the bill is brought up before it's pending and cloture could not solve that. <laughs> yes, hell yeah, that rocks. Um, the other, the other thing is the South, uh, found a loophole wherein like, you know, each day's, you know, uh, session of the Senate was supposed to begin by reading the previous day's minutes. And so, uh, you know, when Pat Harrison of Mississippi wants to stop an anti-lynching bill, uh, the Southerners just demand that the minutes be discussed and they just don't <laughs> stop discussing the previous meeting's minutes until the sponsors of the anti-lynching bill withdraw it. Oh my God, that rocks. And I love, you know, and again, I mean, it can't be expressed how fucking ridiculous it is. And, you know, the ultimate thing is the reason why people allow this out is they don't actually give a shit. Mm-hmm. But that grown adults are sitting there going, well, they said we got to discuss the minutes. I guess we got to discuss the minutes. <laughs> you know, like, like as if the South just cast a fucking spell on you or something. Like you could just tell them to fuck off. Like it's fine. Yeah. This is actually how like parliaments work in the rest of the world is uh, people will appeal to some dumb Robert's rule of order and the party that holds the majority in parliament will just tell them to fuck off. Like no, sorry, we don't care. Or <laughs> use some other aspect of Robert Rules of Order to tell yeah. him no. Yeah, yeah, depending on what kind of nerds you have. You know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, just astonishing that this is like you know how the state functions at its highest level. Imagine looking at this and being like, "This is really great. We got to keep this." <laughs> yeah. So of course. This is all maintained because, you know, the Senate has its own sort of rules of professionalism, right? Yeah, which, you know, kind of goes very well with this Southern culture of, you know, aristocracy and, uh, you know, surface level, you know, pleasantness. And so, uh, you know, like, for example, um, senators weren't allowed to address each other directly they'd have to refer to uh mr president and uh you know there's yeah i mean there's this culture of you know collegiality and so you know that that kind of plays well with uh how the southerners operate where they would kind of stay cool and uh dispassionate and so if somebody you know got mad at them for holding things up uh they would make that other person uh you know look bad yeah well and i mean this goes to the sort of 
you know, the Senate, you know, as is this inherently reactionary body, again, this is one of these disciplining measures. I mean, you know, we had two examples from the recent past and that Joe Biden's long running friendship with Strom Thurmond, you know, was always cloaked in this idea of like Senate, you know, cordiality and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that we're supposed to just excuse the fact that one of the most awful racist ghouls of all history uh, is, you know, attached to this, you know, star of the Democratic Party is also one of the most awful racist ghouls in human history. But it's supposedly explainable because of Senate collegiality or why Bernie couldn't come out and just hammer fucking Joe Biden during their debates was, again, explained away as well. You know, look, they're they were in the Senate together. And, you know, like and I think this is true that, like, you know, Bernie, he likes Joe. He sees him as like his, uh, you know, his little his little workmate. And so he's not going to go out and attack him. And it's like, yeah, that was but, the weird thing. That was unfortunate. Yeah. And in the reality of politics is that this kind of collegiality bullshit is strictly a disciplinary measure to sort of make sure that reactionary power isn't questioned, right? It's to, it's literally to ensure the old order, uh, like the definitionary reactionary politics. And uh, that's not what, you know, politics is not about that. Politics is about, uh, you know, life and death for most people. Yeah, and it's it, about it really, power. Yeah, it's about power and, you know, the desire to exercise it and, you know, we see in a lot of these cases how this shit stands in the way of that uh, and abiding by this stands in the way of it. Um, so, of course, the South uses, you know, all these tools in their tool belt. Right. Uh, the main function they're going to use this for is maintaining Jim Crow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they would also work with, uh, you know, Republican conservatives, you know, mm-hmm. Southern Democrats working with uh, Republican conservatives to defeat, you know, social economic programs. And then in turn, you know, the GOP, uh, you know, coming from, you know, like maybe Sunbelt or other states with a very small black population in their states, they kind of think, well, I don't really give a shit. Like, I'll I'll help you uh, defeat civil rights legislation in turn. Uh, mm-hmm. in turn for you helping me defeat, you know, other economic legislation. Uh, Justin, what do you have against bipartisanship? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is, that was the ultimate in, uh, in bipartisanship. Yeah, it was the South, uh, the, the anti-Black South shaking hands with the anti-Union, like West and North. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, one of these sort of great signs or, you know, uh, great moments in history of this kind of shit was when Democratic sim- uh, senators uh, from the South launched in 1948 their Dixiecrat convention, where they essentially threatened to break with the Democratic Party and run their own candidates yeah. and stuff. And it is drenched in all the sort of anti-Black racism that you know, we're still dealing with today. They, you know, were flying Confederate flags during the convention. This is really when the Confederate flag becomes like the symbol of white supremacy in America. Um, They're carrying, you know, giant pictures of fucking Robert E. Lee, like some sort of uh, perverse, uh, you know, demonstration in Red Square or something. Uh, 
And they're essentially laying out the Senate position, right? They, they're they going to run Strom Thurmond for president. Yeah. And Strom Thurmond, we're talking 1948 here, a guy who would still be in the Senate in the 2000s. Yeah. Um, they, they're going to run Strom Thurmond for president. I mean, luckily, luckily, the rest of the Senate punished him for this, right? The Democratic Party punished him for this, right? Um, and they essentially are laying out the rule, which is that for Southern senators, the maintenance of segregation is going to be a, a critical issue they're going to the mats for, right? Yeah. And I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're just very united on this. Uh, they're super effective. Um, you know, sometimes they don't even use their, their loopholes to stop bills from coming to the floor. They'd let them come to the floor and filibuster them there. Sometimes they, they'd use the loopholes. Uh, when faced with a bill to get rid of the poll tax federally in 1944, uh, Southern senators made threats like, if this passes, the Klan will rise again and <laughs> ended up Christ. shooting it down by a majority. Yeah. Yeah. And during this time, right, they're using the uh, language that we'll find uh, very familiar to Alexander Hamilton and others of warning of the, you know, the majority as the mob, right? You know, they needed protection against mob rule, uh, by which they meant any sort of democratic pressure. (laughs) Uh, So this is the sort of milieu, right? Because we're talking all the way up to 1950. Yeah. That LBJ is going to walk into. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you can kind of see that, uh, you know, in, in, in some ways, uh, the, the stage is set, like, uh, you can see where, where the power is here in the Senate. It, it's definitely in the South. Um, you can see there's a lot of unwritten rules, uh, which can be exploited. And you can see that there's a lot of old men for lbj to buddy up to (laughs) always key well uh the stage is indeed set and when we come back again we're going to talk about exactly what johnson does in the senate Uh, i'm sure he will not take advantage of any of these weird rules or traditions or anything (laughs) like that to uh amass power for himself uh that I'm sure he'll he'll approach it in a calm, reasonable manner. <laughs> yeah, and and respect all these great traditions of yes. uh, professionalism yes. and uh, decorum. You know, you never do something like uh, talk to people in the bathroom and uh, <laughs> and uh, and pull jumbo. Uh, jumbo will be making an appearance, I promise, <laughs> yeah. in the next episode. Uh, a lot of appearances, as it were. Yeah, uh, and LBJ is going to prove that if you just don't give a shit about any of this stuff. You can actually accomplish a lot, Um, you know, uh, all to his own ends, unfortunately. But, you know, you can get things done, it turns out. Uh, Any last uh, thoughts on the Senate? Uh, What was your favorite period of the Senate's existence? Um, You know, I would I would have to say (laughs) I agree with, uh, you know, the the guy in the intro and that the the Gilded Age was uh, probably the best. You know, they got a. they had nice outfits, uh, you know. They secured pretty, pretty nice uh, lifestyles for themselves. It seems like they had a pretty good time. That's probably when the parties were the best. Yeah. Uh, uh, probably when they were the most freaky and hedonistic. Honestly, probably. Oh yeah, yeah. Compared today, um, yeah. Uh, uh, mine, you know, there's so many good ones, but 
maybe I'll go back to the the golden age because it's the only time when Senate speeches are actually like worth reading. Outside of that, it's it's pretty much a waste. Um, yeah. You know, but the arguments over uh, incorporating taxes into the union, all that, there's a lot of like very fun, uh, extremely racist, awful shit that you yeah. can read right in there. Uh, that's quite entertaining. Uh, what's actually really interesting, too, is Lincoln, when he's in the House of Representatives, uh, responding to the Senate has a series of what are called spot debates, which are actual arguments over. Uh, so during the war with Mexico, uh, the argument is that the Mexican army had crossed into uh, Texas territory, right? And that's why the U.S. had to go to war with Mexico. And the spot debates are arguing where exactly the line between Texas and Mexico is and where exactly the Mexican army was at the time. So it's this uh. hilariously pedantic fucking debate <laughs> that nobody in Washington, by the way, could have any idea of what any of this mm-hmm. means other than the fact that Lincoln's just saying, I think the war was bad, which I'm going to go ahead and say that I think Lincoln was right on that one. So yeah. score, score one for the old man, uh, that president that doesn't get enough credit, you know, <laughs> yeah. not enough people think Lincoln was a good president, but uh, yeah. you know, we'll score one for the old man on that one. He shouldn't have gotten uh, shot, though. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go on a limb here and say that Lincoln getting shot was bad. Yeah. Shouldn't have done it. Um, you know, the, the last thing I would say is that, you know, there there is kind of, uh, you know, a, a positive, you know, theory of change here where even with this uh, reactionary, you know, like heinous institution that is the Senate, during the New Deal era where, you know, the power of labor is pretty strong. There's a lot of uh, pop- popular will to get social programs mm-hmm. done. Uh, the Senate just gets overrun and has to rubber stamp a lot of the New Deal legislation. So yeah. there, is, there is a little bit of hope there. Yeah. And, you know, Bernie didn't really use this and has certainly never had the chance to really use it either. But uh, from, you know, elements in his campaign, their sort of theory of power was that, look, the House and the Senate, you know, definitely the Senate are going to line up against you. The court's going to line up against you. And you're just going to have to use the bully pulpit and popular support, the overwhelming popular support for these programs to essentially shove it down their throats. And that is the reality. Like, you know, you're, you're, the idea of collegiate debate is bullshit because it doesn't recognize the, existence of power and interest <laughs> it, it just assumes that we're all having free floating intellectual you know debates and that's not actually how the terrain on which you are uh making these decisions that being said uh fuck the senate fuck the supreme court the actual solution is get rid of both of them and yeah. the pre- and the presidency honestly the presidency sucks too but not I, quite I'd, as bad as the I, i'd settle for just getting rid of those two things so. yeah yeah I, that would be a major step in the right direction all right well uh we'll see everybody next time uh yeah uh jumbo will rise a jumbo will rise <laughs> bye again <laughs> see ya.